word meditation is a much used word these days. Covers a wide range of practices. To know what we mean by that word when we use it. And in Buddhism, they designate two kinds of meditation. Uh, one samatha, the other vipassana. Samatha meditation is concentrating the mind on an object. Now this is the ability to sustain your attention on on a chosen object, rather than, than uh, letting the mind wander off to other things, or just thinking, one chooses an object such as the sensation of breathing, that sensation of the breath, the inhalation, exhalation, and puts one's full attention on that, sustaining one's attention, so that eventually, through this practice, you you begin to feel the calm mind, tranquility. You become very tranquil because it's, you're cutting off all other sensory impingements. You're not dwelling on the other kind of, uh, say, uh, impingement that comes through the senses. You're repressing it out of consciousness by sustaining and holding your attention on this one object. And of course, the objects that you choose for tranquility are tranquilizing objects, needless to say. If you want to have an excited mind, then you go and go to something that's exciting. You want to get excited and, and carried away with fascinating rhythms, exciting movements. You don't come to a, a Buddhist monastery, go to a disco. Because that's where you find excitement. So you concentrate on that, but excitement is, is easy, isn't it? Because it's so strong a vibration that it just pulls you right into it. And go to the cinema. And if, if it's really an exciting film, you become so enthralled by it, you don't, you don't have to exert any effort to, to watch something that's very exciting, romantic, or adventurous. It's energy, it's exciting movement. What's going on is, is so compelling that we just are pulled right into it. But in a tranquilizing object, if you're not used to uh, absorbing into tranquilizing or more refined movements or rhythms, then of course you would find this terribly boring. What is more boring than watching your breath if you're used to a more exciting uh, rhythms? Something that makes your body move. You just forget yourself, find your body just moving to the rhythm of music. Here, you have to move your mind Keep your mind on the movement of your breathing. Now that kind of uh, ability means that you have to arouse the effort from your mind because it's not interesting. The breath isn't interesting. It's not exciting. It's not romantic. It's not adventurous. Scintillating or fascinating. Fantastic or amazing or wonderful. It's just as it is. Your normal breath, ordinary breathing, is just as it is. 
And if you concentrate on it, say, that means you have to up, bring effort up from your mind. You have to uh, arouse effort because you aren't getting uh, stimulated from outside. A lot of our effort in life comes from being stimulated outside, from interesting, fascinating uh, things that, that happen to us. Getting, uh, having something worthwhile to do, you know, feeling of purpose, or something that's interesting. Food and drink, and all this, stimulate our senses. But in this kind of meditation, you're not uh, taking any kind of stimulants or, or drugs or things that excite the senses, but you are arousing effort from your own mind, sustaining that effort by paying attention just to what's going on, which is the rhythm of your ordinary normal breathing. So you're watching what is actually happening now with your body. You're not, you're not trying to create any kind of image, manufacture any, anything out of the ordinary, just the ordinary normal breathing of your body as it is right now, you concentrate on that. And you sustain, hold your attention to the breathing. When you do that, you begin, the breath becomes more and more refined, calms down. This is a very healthy practice because it's a very calming practice to the body, the whole physical body. The organs, the nerves, everything will feel much the better once you learn to calm it down through this uh, tranquility. I even know people who prescribe it for people with high blood pressure because it calms the heart. So concentration practice of what in, in the Pali language is samatha. You can choose different objects to concentrate on, like they have different uh, subjects, or objects of concentration. But what we mean by that is you're focusing on an object. You're choosing one object and training yourself to sustain your attention on it till you absorb or become one with that, with a sense of separation. Subject-object diminishes considerably or disappears. You actually feel that that wholeness or that oneness with the object that you've uh, been concentrating on. And that's what we call absorption. Then the other practice is vipassana or insight meditation. And insight meditation is rather than choosing an object and concentrating on just one object, like closing your mind to everything else and just focusing your attention on one thing, with insight meditation you're opening the mind up to everything. You're not picking or choosing any particular object to concentrate on or to absorb into, but to recognize, to watch, to witness, to understand the way things are. So in this practice of insight meditation is where wisdom is developed in our lives. Now the 
practice of inside meditation means that we, we, we open the mind up. We're not choosing an object to attach to, but just watching the way things are. Their attention I think Krishnamurti called it choiceless awareness. Bear attention, awareness of the way things are. Mindfulness. Now what we can't see, the way things are, is that all sensory experience is, is permanent. Everything you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, all mental conditions, your feelings, memories, thoughts, are changing conditions of the mind. They arise, they pass away. So we take this, this characteristic of impermanence and change as a way of looking at all sensory experience that we can observe while we're sitting here. Whether it's a sound, a sight, smell, taste, touch, a mood or emotion, feeling, a memory, thoughts. If we really investigate and observe, this isn't just a, uh, a, a philosophical attitude or, or a, a, a belief in a particular Buddhist theory, but it is to be insightfully known by observing, really opening the mind to watch, be that which is fully awake and aware of the way things are. not anal analyzing them by assuming certain that things should be a certain way and when they aren't that way then we we start uh, trying to figure out why things are aren't the way we think they should be that's not what we're doing we're not trying to analyze ourselves or create anything new or try to really change anything to fit our desires but in this practice, beginning to just observe, patiently observe, that whatever arises passes away, whether it's mental or physical, whether it's this, the uh, sense organs themselves or the objects of sense, your eye and the objects of the eye and the consciousness that arise in contact the organ, the physical sense organ, your eye, your two eyes, them their objects, form that we see. And when the eye contacts this object, there's consciousness, or what you call jakku vinyana, eye consciousness. That applies to the other senses, the ear, nose, tongue, the body. mental conditions of liking or disliking what we see here, smell, taste, touch, or the, uh, the, the feelings of like or dislike, attraction or repulsion, and the names we give them, and the uh, things, the ideas and words, concepts we create around sensory experience. by assuming, making assumptions, having, just following uh, beliefs or opinions or ideas or prejudices, biases, 
the feelings or whatever unquestioned assumptions that we make about ourselves and the world we live in. We've never really investigated or really observed the way things are. So, so much of our life is based on wrong assumptions out of not understanding the way anything is. So life for one who isn't awake and aware tends to become very kind of depressing or bewildering or especially when disappointing things happen or tragedies or or life becomes very unpleasant very difficult and one becomes overwhelmed by it because one has not observed the way things are now when we in Buddhist terms we we use the word Dhamma Dhamma or Dharma. This means, in, in um, Buddhist terminology, the way it is, the, the natural laws, nature, the law of nature. When we observe and, and practice the Dhamma, we, we, when we practice, say practicing the Dhamma, we mean we open our mind to the way things are. So that we are no longer just blindly reacting, no longer just caught in in the reacting to the sensory experience, but understanding it, comprehending it, and through that comprehension and understanding, we begin to let go of it. We begin to free ourselves from identifying with it or just being overwhelmed or blinded and deluded by the appearance. The biases, the fixed positions we take from not understanding sensory consciousness. Now, to be aware and awake means it's not trying to be. It's not a matter of becoming that way, but of being that way. So we observe the way it is right now, rather than doing something now to become aware in the future. So we observe just the, the body that we, we have as it's sitting here on the floor. The breath of the body. It all belongs to nature, doesn't it? The, your body, the human body, belongs to the earth. It's an earthbound body. It needs to be sustained by the things that it come out of the earth. You can't live on just air or try to import food from Mars or Venus. You have to eat the things that grow and live on this earth. And then when the body dies, it goes back to the earth, doesn't it? It rots and decays, becomes one with the earth again. So the body is something that belongs to the earth. It follows the laws of nature, of creation, destruction, of being born and then dying. Anything that is born doesn't stay permanently in one quality, does it? It grows up, gets old and dies. All conditions in nature that we see, the trees, the, 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 uh, all the vegetable animal kingdom, even the universe itself all has their spans of existence. Exp 
expansion and contraction, creation and destruction, birth and death, beginning and ending. All that we can perceive and conceive of is change, changing, impermanent. It can never permanently satisfy you because its nature is to change. So we also observe the unsatisfactoriness of sensory experience. Now just note in your own life that, that when you expect to be satisfied from sensory uh, objects or experiences, you can only be, say, temporarily satisfied, gratified mainly, momentarily happy, and then it changes. Because the sensory experience, the sensory consciousness, is a changing vibration. It's not, there's no point in it that has any well, kind of permanent quality or essence. So the sense experience is always a changing one. And out of ignorance and not understanding that, we tend to expect a lot from it, demand, hope, and create all kinds of things, only to feel terribly disappointed, anguished, despairing, sorrowful, frightened, because we, we, we expect or want or hope, and then those very expectations and hopes take, takes, will take us to despair, anguish and sorrow, grief, lamentation, old age, sickness and death. So this is, say, a way of investigating sensory consciousness. The sense, uh, the body is a, is, is a sense organ. The eye, ear, nose, tongue. The ability to think, to remember. We have this, a mind that can, that has a memory, it can store up things, it can it has intelligence, so it can as associate one thing with another. It can uh, think in abstractions. It can create all kinds of ideas, images. It can re make things very refined or very coarse. We can refine sensory experience into very, very fine, fine states of consciousness. Or we can make them very low, very coarse, very painful and miserable. There's a whole gamut of possibilities from very refined states of blissful happiness and ecstasies to very coarse, painful miseries from heaven to hell, using more picturesque terminology. Heaven is happiness, hell is misery. And all that is sensual. It's not, it's not, it's, uh, it's something that arises and passes and changes. There's no permanent hell, no permanent heaven, no permanent state that can be perceived or conceived of. So in our meditation, 
once we begin to realize the limitations, the unsatisfactoriness, the changing nature of all sensory experience, we also begin to realize that it is not me or mine, and in this Buddhist term, anatta, not self. We begin to we free ourselves from the identification with the sensory conditions. Now this is done not through aversion to them, rejection of them, but understanding them as they are. And realizing this is a truth to be realized, not a belief. So anatta is not a Buddhist belief, but an actual realization freeing oneself from the burden of identifying with mortal conditions, with mortality. Now, if you don't spend any time in your life trying to investigate or understand it, you'll probably live your whole life on the assumption that you are your body. And even though you will, uh, you might, at moments think, oh, I'm not the body. You read some kind of inspired poetry or something, uh, some new philosophical angle, you might think that's a good idea that one isn't the body. But you don't really know that. You don't really haven't realized that. Haven't insightfully seen that, known that. Now, even though, like some people, intellectuals and so forth, will say, we are not the body, the body is not self, they make that's easy to say, but to really know that is something else. But through this practice of meditation, this kind of meditation, investigation, understanding of the way things are, the sensory experience as it is, we begin to free ourselves from attachment to it, from being identified with it, from grasping hold of it, from expecting it to be something, or hoping, or demanding. And because we no longer expect or demand from it, then, of course, we no longer feel the resultant despair and sorrow and grief when we don't get what we want, or it changes in a way we don't we, we don't want. The goal, the realization of enlightenment, is the realization of deathless, deathlessness, Nibbana, or realization of non-grasping of conditions. So condition, I'm using the word here, the word condition here is all, as for meaning all sensory conditions, phenomena that has a beginning and an ending, a birth and a death. And when we let go of this insidious and habitual attachment to the what is born and dies, we begin to realize the deathless. So it's, deathless is a realization. Deathlessness is a realization. It's not a belief. 
we're moving away from just the blind habitual reaction, action and reaction to sensory experience. Right. Some people just live their lives just reacting to life as they've been kind of conditioned to do so. Like the Pavlovian dog. Just an animal that's been conditioned to say and do and react to, to stimulation, sensory stimulation, through conditioning. Some people are nothing, really not, nothing much more than that even though human intelligence gives us a, an aura or a kind of presence of being a little bit above that, if you've not awakened to the way things are, then you really are just a merely a conditioned, intelligent creature rather than a conditioned, stupid dog. may look down on Pablo's dog because it salivates when the bell rings. But notice how we do very similar things. (laughs) (laughs) Because in the sensory experience, it's all conditioning. It's not a person. It's not, it's not a, it's it's no soul or or personal essence, anything like that. There's none of that. These bodies, feelings, memories, thoughts, these are perceptions conditioned into the mind through, say, through our background, having been born as a human being, being born into the families we have in the class, the race, nationality, whether we have a male or a female body, attractive or unattractive, so forth. All these are just the conditions that are not ours, not me, not mine. These belong to, they, they follow the laws of nature, the natural laws. There's nothing we, we can't say, I don't want my body to get old. Now, we can say that, but no matter how insistent we are and demanding that, it still gets old. The body, we can't say uh, uh, we can, you know, we, if we expect it to never feel pain or get cold or feel hunger or get ill, or always have perfect vision and hearing. We hope, don't we? We hope. I hope I'll always be healthy. I will never become an invalid. I always have good eyesight. Never become blind and have good ears. So I'll never be one of those old people that people have, that others have to yell at. And that I'll never get senile. I'll always have control over my faculties till I die at 95, fully alert, bright, cheerful person, and then die just in my sleep, without any pain. Even though we think that's how we'd all like it, we've got to learn to put up with the way it is. Whatever happens. <laughs> because it's following the laws of nature. It's not just what the way it is. Some of us, some of you might, 
have the ability to the, your natural uh, your your uh, conditions might uh, hold up for a long time and then die in this idyllic way or tomorrow we all might eyeballs might fall out <laughs> it's unlikely but it could happen <laughs> reflection and understanding means that we suddenly the burden we feel the burden of life diminishing considerably because we realize that our lifespan is limitations what we can achieve what we can know what we can learn from it and then we can do that where so much anguish and human misery and depression come out of expecting a lot and, ne and never quite being able to get everything that one is hoped for. Never having properly reflected on the way things are, one then finds life becoming, say, increasingly unsatisfactory or miserable because one had ex hoped and expected that it would never be that way. And yet, life is, a lot of it is pleasant and a lot of it is unpleasant. As much pleasure and beauty as there is, uh, uh, as there is in the sensual experience, there's that much pain and misery and ugliness. So in our meditations and insightful understandings of the way things are, we see that beauty, refinement, Pleasure is an impermanent condition, as well as pain, misery, and ugliness. When you really understand that, then you can enjoy and endure whatever happens to you that you have to experience in this lifespan as a human being. <coughs> Begin to see our life as a, an opportunity for enlightenment rather than just a helpless victim of fate. When you're depressed and you think, I can't help the way I am, I'm just make mistakes and I don't seem to learn, I'm a hopeless case. And when you start hating yourself, you think of yourself always in a very critical negative ways. Because you can conceive or imagine how how you should be. If you have any kind of intelligence, you can always imagine how you should be, how a perfect man should be, a perfect woman should be, how we would like to be if we could be everything we we like. But so much of the lesson in life is learning to endure what we don't like in ourselves and in the world around us. 
being able to endure, to be patient, to be kindly, to be one who does not make a scene over the imperfections and flaws in the sensory experience. We don't expect the sensory world to be perfect anymore. We don't demand that it always be at a high standard in in its best form, best shape, just for me, so I won't have to experience any misery from it. But we can adapt and learn and endure and accept the changing characteristic of the sensory birth and death cycle. By letting go, by by no longer attaching to it, by freeing ourselves from identity with it, we experience our true nature, which is bright, alert, clear, knowing, but is not a personal thing anymore. It's not me or mine. There's no sense of self or attainment or attachment to it, because if, if you attach, then you can't attach. So you, you can only attach to that which is not yourself. So by wisely reflecting, observing, investigating, like the Buddhist teaching, are merely helpful means to ways of of looking at sensory experience that help us to understand it. They're not commandments. They're not beliefs, doctrines. They're not religious doctrines, things or dogmas that we have to accept or believe in. They are merely teachings or guides to point to the way things are. They're like pointers at the truth. During these teachings of the Buddha, we are using them not by holding on to them, grasping those teachings as an end in themselves, but merely using them to awaken, to remind ourselves to be awake, alert, and aware. So even our Buddhist conventions, like being monks, nuns, the, the uh, Buddha image, the uh, ceremonies, the pujas, the old days that we do, are not to kind of try to uh, flatter the gods and try to get a better place in the heavenly realms. isn't a superstition, but if these conventions, religious conventions, are used skillfully, they are all reminding us of what? That all that arises passes away. They help us to, they begin to look at things more carefully. If you're a monk, you're wearing a robe like this, you're obviously very different from everyone else, especially in a country like England. You stand out in a crowd. When people 
somebody I don't know says, I'll meet you at Waterloo. I never have to describe what I'll be wearing. <laughs> they never have trouble finding me. Crowded in Waterloo Station at rush hour. I stand out in a crowd. They say, Why do you want to do that? You want to, you think you're better? Not that. It's a way of being a monk is, is a constant reflection on the experience of living. You're even wearing the robes of the Buddha, meaning the awakened one, that which is why. Buddha means the awakened one, that which knows the truth. So just wearing robes, a shaven head and all that, one, say, is designating one's life for just this continuous, constant observation and reflection on the sensory world, because it is a powerful, powerfully strong influence, isn't it? Having a body like this, the society we live on, that we live in, the times, the demands, the expectations, the pressures on all of you are, are fantastic. The sensory impingement, everything moves so quickly, so fast. So, uh, television and, and uh, all these, uh, uh, of the technology of the age, the, the cars and the everything is tends to move at a very fast pace it's all very attractive and alluring exciting and interesting all to kind of pull your senses out you go up to london just notice how all the advertisements and and the uh, shop windows all decorated and fixed up and displayed in order to pull your attention to whiskey bottles and <coughs> cigarettes. The enormous whiskey bottles in the London Underground. You go down in the underground, there are enormous whiskey bottles painted on the wall. Cigarettes saying, written in big white black letters and white background, hazardous to your health, and then the very attractive cigarette package. Trying to pull your, make your, pull your attention into things that you can buy and consume, all it outward going toward uh, rebirth into sensory experience and uh, sexuality. Enormous kind of emphasis on that now. Wherever you go, there's a, a pressure to to be allured or pulled into. Uh, some kind of sexual object. Very strong now. That's a, that's a very attracting force in nature. If you don't understand it, you just become a helpless victim of it or frightened of it. So the society is a materialistic one based on greed, trying to arouse greedy, uh, make you as greedy as possible, so you'll spend your money, you make money and spend it to keep the economy going. 
they never be contented with what you have, but you you should get more. Always think you need more. Never be contented with anything other than the best. And what's the best today isn't the best tomorrow, is it? There's always something better, something newer, something improved on, something whiter and brighter, something more delicious than what was the most delicious yesterday. It's most delicious yesterday, then, but that is gone now. There's something more delicious than what was most delicious yesterday. It goes on and on and on and on like that. Tenants, the, the, this putting your attention outward all the time into the, into the objects of sense, music, taste, fragrances, what you see, pleasurable uh, bodily sensations, interesting uh, intellectual pastimes, so forth, so that your mind is always going out, out there. You've noticed how m much of your life is just be, you're being constantly pulled out. So in meditation now, they, when we come into the shrine room here, is is we're not here to kind of look at each other or to to be uh, attracted or pulled into any of the objects in the room, but to use them for reminding ourselves to either concentrate our mind on a tranquilizing, peaceful, skillful object, or open the mind and investigate and watch and see Reflect on the way things are till you really, truly, insightfully understand. Now, in the the enlightenment means that we have to. This is to be experienced each one for ourselves. No one else's enlightenment is going to enlighten any any uh, any of the rest of us. So that this is a movement inward. You're not looking outward for somebody who's enlightened to make you enlightened. But here, say in this shrine room, you're see here you're beginning to look inward. Look at yourself a little more closely than you would otherwise. We take this. We give this opportunity, this occasion, and encouragement and guidance, so that those of you are who are interested in doing this have this, can do so, the courage to do so. If you're down in the middle of Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus, it's much more difficult. The distractions are so strong. There's not as, you don't know who's going to, who's sitting next to you or what they're going to do. You're in a, in a kind of dangerous place where there's, you don't know what the people are, up to what they might do. You have to constantly kind of be on your guard. See that they don't hit you over the head or snatch your purse. But here in the shrine room you can you you can most of the time you can be sure that nobody's going to snatch your purse. 
these days you can't count on anything. But there's less risk of it here than, say, if you were sitting in Piccadilly Circus. Everyone here, say, most of us anyway, are determined to, say, live lives of honesty, be honest and just and non-violent, harmless, decent about things. Our intentions are to be so anyway. <laughs> so that this is an occasion or an opportunity to where you can sit in a relative safety and have some confidence that your life now is not in any immediate danger, so then you can close your eyes, can't you? Because you don't have to think, if I close my eyes, maybe somebody will hit me over the head, take my purse. So Buddhist monasteries are refuges or places that give that occasion, that encouragement for this kind of opening of the mind. As human beings, this is our the occasion, the this opportunity as a human being. Means that a human being is different from, say, the animal kingdom in its ability to reflect on itself. The human mind, even though we have an animal body, an animal type body, we have a mind that can observe and witness to the way things are. Where an animal cannot do that. Animals cannot uh, meditate. They can't, uh, one thing, they don't have much intelligence. And they have its ability to reflect on themselves. But as a human being, we have what we call a reflective mind. As notice, this is what I mean by reflection, is that you can observe your mood. You can observe whether you're happy or miserable. You can observe anger or jealousy, or greed, or confusion of your mind. When you're sitting there and you feel really confused and upset, and you, there's that in you which knows it, that sees it. You might hate it, want to get rid of it, just blindly react to it, but if you're more patient, you can observe that this is a temporary changing condition of confusion, or anger, or greed. But an animal can't do that. When it's angry, it's completely that. It's lost in it. Tell an angry cat to watch its anger. See, see if you get it. I've never been able to get anywhere with our cat here. Greed. Doris, and she comes in, and have people come and give meat on the weekend. She completely loses lost in greed and say, Doris, greed is not self. It doesn't understand. <laughs> 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 she
she can't reflect on greed, but I can. I'm sure the rest of you can. In the delicious food scene in front of me, uh, the movement is the same as Doris, isn't it? The Doris is the cat wanting to wanting to go into it and eat it, gobble it all up. There's the same animal attraction to something that smells good and looks good, and but you can observe it. It's not out of fear. Like Doris doesn't jump into the arms bowl because she's frightened, and if she does, what will happen? <laughs> she's been conditioned <laughs> to spankings and so forth. That <laughs> so she's a fear-conditioned creature, but not a wisdom creature. Well, this is using wisdom by watching that impulse, that attraction, and greed, and understanding it, observing what it is. And that which observes greed is not greed. Greed can't observe itself, but that which is not greed can observe it. We call that Buddha or wisdom, Buddha wisdom. Hatred is the same, you know, sudden anger or aversion to somebody. And when an animal feels anger, it just completely gets whirled away, has no perspective. But if we're a little more patient, we can observe, I'm really angry. We can listen to the anger going on in the mind. Because that which can observe anger isn't angry. There's a condition of anger that's going through the mind, which if we aren't mindful, we just become whirled away by, just like the, the, the animal, just get caught into it. And fighting or cursing or something, doing something terrible, or feeling guilty about it. We shouldn't. If you're a very high-minded person and you feel anger, and then you might hate yourself for being angry. We're much more complex these days. We can't just feel things in their simple forms anymore. We had he had all complicated neurotic tendencies on top of everything else. But in, in their mindfulness now, opening the mind, awareness of the way things are, we can observe the anger, the guilt, the, the self-hatred. All these are objects that one can witness to and observe, that they arise, they pass away and they're anatta, not self, not mine. They're not what I am. 